Well, I think uh, we should be able to uh, get started now. And uh, I'd just like to welcome everyone to the Cato Institute. My name is Andrew Colson, and I direct the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Now, if you're here today, it's probably because you recognize that there are serious problems with the American education system. And if you're watching us on C-SPAN, um, that probably goes for you too. Unless you just switched over here because the show you were watching went to commercial, in which case I hope you'll stay. Um, but that's the great thing about channel surfing these days. I mean, we don't just have broadcast TV. We've got cable and satellite and YouTube and Vimeo and Hulu and Netflix. It's trivially easy to flip away from something that's boring or some annoying commercial and find exactly what we're looking for. It's a lot harder to do that in education. It's still the norm today in the United States that the typical child attends a school to which she was assigned by a bureaucrat who's never met her. And some of those schools are really quite good. And many of them are not. Far too many of them are not. We've had the same problem for generations. Too many bad schools, not enough good ones. And we've tried a million different things. We've had a new slogan, a new campaign every few years to try to turn that relationship around. And none of that has worked. If you're one of the millions of kids who ends up in a mediocre school, we clip your dreams a little. And if you end up in a really bad school, no, we actually have a term now for the really bad schools. We call them dropout factories. That's actually really weak imagery. It, it totally fails to capture the horror of what's actually happening in awful schools. We're not just taking some lump of ore and turning it into a abstract widget of failure. We're taking living, breathing kids who have hopes and dreams and we're slashing those hopes and dreams to pieces when we fail them educationally. Awful schools aren't dropout factories. They're slaughterhouses of dreams. That's a horrible image. It's a horrible image. But it's not horrible because it's ugly. It's horrible because it's true. And despite how horrible that is, there's still hope. We can already point today to schools that do a great job, that continuously, regularly outperform the norm as far as graduation rates and academic achievement and performance. All we need to do is figure out how to get more of those schools and fewer bad ones, how to replicate excellence, how to clone Superman, to use the title of this uh, panel. And the thing about that problem, that's a general problem. And it's already been solved in every other field. Think about it. I and mean, think about excellent things, excellent services and products in every other field. It's routine for them to scale up and crowd out products that no longer meet our demands. That's the norm. That's what always happens. The only field in which excellence doesn't just automatically spread and crowd out lower performing services and products is education. 
So could it be that if we were to run schools a little bit more like the way we run everything else, we'd see the same scaling up of excellence in education that we see in every other field? And that's the question that we're going to ask today by looking at two countries that have already, for decades, been moving a step down the road towards a free enterprise approach to education. Now, the idea of schools run as businesses, as for-profit businesses, uh, is pretty alien in this country. Uh, outrageous, some people would say. But what's more outrageous? Rewarding the educators who do the best job of fulfilling children's potential or perpetuating the status quo in which we too often destroy that potential completely? Well, helping us to answer these questions is a truly unique panel of speakers. Uh, we'll start with Peya Emelson, who is a serial entrepreneur. Uh, after studying at both Stockholm University and Harvard Business School, he founded an international communications company and a public opinion research firm. And 10 years ago, a chain of private schools known as Kunskapskolen. It's the largest or one of the largest such chains in Sweden. And it's different from most US private schools in that it is run as a business. It is a for-profit enterprise. And given how crazy that idea sounds in the United States, presumed bastion of capitalism, imagine the reception that Peya received when he floated the idea in Sweden. Um, I hope we'll hear some of that story, actually, if we, if we do. Uh, our next speaker will be Umberto Santos, who is a researcher in, public in the Public Policy Institute at Universidad Diego Portales and a research associate at the Center for Comparative Politics of Education at the same university. He previously worked in the Studies Department of the Chilean Ministry of Planning. And his current research focuses on the analysis of local education markets, regulations, and accountability in educational systems, which is perfect for the subject matter that we have today. Putting these first two presentations in an American perspective and asking some challenging questions will be Sarah Sparks, who covers education research trends and issues for the National Education Week newspaper. And she also discusses the politics, personalities, and for those of you familiar with statistics jargon, the p-values behind the research on these topics. Uh, and she does that for the blog inside school research. Prior to joining Education Week, she spent five years writing about federal and state education regulations and authoring two technical assistance books for school administrators on homeless students and English language learners. So we have a really wonderful panel. And uh, with that uh, introduction, I would like to hand the podium over to Peya Emelson. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, let me start by giving a little background what happened in Sweden, because most people are surprised that Sweden, one of the first countries, put this voucher model together. Sweden was going very much to the left after 1968. The 70s in Sweden were terrible. Uh, the trade unions were fighting for trade union funds that would give 
the majority ownership of all the leading corporates within a 15-year period. Uh, education was not seen as something that was important to learn thing, but to create good personality in the society, let's put it that way. And um, the few private schools there were disappeared. We got a very monolithic system in education. It was so regulated. So I'll just give one example. When my daughter was about 11 years old, so happened that there came two new children into her school, and that led to the permission to add an, one more teacher, which led to the school saying, now your daughter and 10 more have to move to another school. And we said, no. Uh, there, in a number of rural areas, politicians decided to close schools, and we had an uproar from people in various groups in society. I became 1988 chairman of one of the three remaining private schools. Uh, and the government did whatever they could to close that school. I actually had to go to the Supreme Court twice uh, when they sent letters telling the children that they went to an illegal school. And I said, I don't mind going to prison for that. Uh, but then the debate turned over, not only from the conservative side, but from groups within the Social Democrats and the Agrarian Party. So 1992, it was decided that, look, the same amount of money that it costs to go to a state school, a municipal school, you could go to an independent school. And not only that, they said, you could choose any school you like because there are many municipal schools. And then the government said, look, let's give a voucher that's 85% of the value, and then you could ask parents to pay on top of that. And a few schools started. 1994 was an election, Social Democrats won, and they then had a really internal discussion, should they stop the system? And the younger generation of social democrats felt, look, if we do that, we will create one system for the rich and noble people, as you have in the States and in the UK, and not a unitarian system for all Swedes. So it's better to uh, make sure that no one has to pay for going to school. So let's increase the voucher to 100%. And then make sure that you are not allowed to charge you one dollar extra. And that has then, since it was confirmed 1994, led to a revolution, not only in Swedish education, but also starting the whole Swedish society, where we are changing from the traditional welfare state into a state where you have security systems, you have welfare, but with individual choice. You know, Swedes are much more individualistic than you would ever believe. That's the case. So let me give you a few facts about, yeah, you already told me, told them what I was doing. I'm now getting into this freedom explosion also in elderly care, but that is for, for, for another topic. Let me show how the school voucher system. 
today political consensus and it is unique combination of equality and free market publicly funded in the same national core curriculum for all schools and independent schools had equal opportunities to enter the market it's very easy to set up a school and the children the parents decide and they can decide whenever they like. If they don't like the school on a Monday, they can take the money away and go to another school. We are not allowed to pick and choose students. It's first come, first serve. We can never test one. We can never say, we'll take you instead of you. And we cannot charge additional fees. And then some people ask me, how the hell can you make money of that? And I say, well, anything the government does, you can, of course, get a better result at the uh, 20% lower cost. It's very easy. So this is then the freedom explosion. From less than 1% 1991 to 11% in compulsory schools and 23% in upper secondary. In some parts of the Stockholm area, 50% goes to independent schools. One of five Swedish schools is an independent school, and 60% of independent schools are for profit companies. All political parties except the communists accept profits. I told that to my conservative friends in the UK, the only one that because they are also haven't understood profits. The independent schools are outperforming public schools in results. And this is very important. If you see the, you can have in our grading system, 320 marks. And all the public schools have an average of 209, and all the independent schools, 229. It's substantially better. And if you bring out uh, 10 chain schools that are building up efficient back offices, our results are even higher. We are providing better educational results. And that's, of course, important to get the acceptance in Sweden. And a recent study just a few weeks ago from the public authorities in Sweden showed that the cost is about 20% lower cost for merit grade rating point in independent schools compared to public schools. We are getting much more education for each invested Swedish crowns. You see at 2010, 324 crowns it cost in the public schools and 268 in independent schools. Those that believe that you cannot make education more efficient are just wrong. And in all surveys of students, parents, and teachers, satisfaction, independent school performs better or much better. And when independent schools have entered cities with public schools, it has increased the quality of the public schools. Competition works. That's the overall system. Let me then say a few words about Kunskapsskolan. Because we have, and the reason for the success of Kunskapsskolan is that we have, in a way, disrupted the system, the traditional educational system, and found a new way of combining modern technology with teacher participation. 
So our mission is to develop and operate outstanding schools where students through personalized learning and clear goals will stretch their boundaries and learn more than they thought possible. We are convinced, we know that anyone can do much more if they are given the right kind of chance and inspiration to do that. So we replace old structures of schools with modern techniques for coaching and empowering each individual student. You know, the, it's funny the, to set the student in the center. That is not a tradition in educational policy. You don't look at each individual, but everyone knows that Persons learn in different ways. Some when they talk, some when they read, some when they write, some when they listen. And some know this much and some that much. You talk about classroom size. It's impossible if you have 20, 30, or 40 in a classroom, the teacher, or whoever good he or she is, will always lose a number of them on the top and the bottom with different learning skills. So we develop personal schemes instead for each one. We make sure that we have all the curriculum on the computer system, which means that our teachers spend at least 27 hours a week with their students. It's actually about 30 hours. And in Swedish schools, it's only 20. So we get much more teacher work with the students. They are not allowed to sit at home and prepare for their lectures because it's in the system. In private schools, Sometimes teachers only spend about 10 hours a week with the students. When we looked in the UK system, we said, my God, we could start a private school system, charge about half the amount of money what it cost, and provide better education at a much more efficient way. So this is a typical school of us, fairly different from what it is in normal schools. And this has been made possible only because we have had competition. We opened our first school in 2000. Now we've got about 10,000 pupils and a staff about 800. And there you see our national grade. Our average grade is close to 240. It's superior to all the averages. We have about the best results in Sweden. And in some way, I'm now after 10 years. You know, the first year I wasn't convinced what would happen. But now I know the fact that you put each individual student in focus and make sure that they get into a system where they can do better. That is the, the reason for this. The UK came to us. I have negotiated with Lord Adonis, Jim Knight, Vernon Coker, Lord Hill, four ministers of education. And they asked us then to start two academies, and actually, uh, and now the third one, uh, have invested about 60 million pounds in getting our way of education to London. Uh, in September this year, we will open in Manhattan a uh, charter school. We got about 400 students waiting in lines. So we'll have a very interesting lottery later this year. Later this year, and we have a number of other countries that have come to us. And the reason for this is, of course, not the voucher system. Because we have no voucher systems here, even if we've seen how that, what that meant in Sweden. But it's the, the success factor with Swedish, Swedish model had led different new ways of education to appear. And there are a number of other changes also, experimenting with new ways. 
when I went to school, I wasn't allowed to have a calculator. Now all students have all information in their handheld telephone. So of course it's a revolution in a way we are going to educate people in, in, in the future. Most countries have laws saying that a classroom has to be this size and corridors this size. And I'm saying, well, what about laws having how, how big should a factory be, how many should work? You know, it's, it's ridiculous regulated down to small details, which of course you have to get rid of and look at the important thing. What's the result? How much do the kids learn when they come in and how much will they, will they know when they get out? In our school, each teacher has got response for 20 students. And they sit 15 minutes every week in a personal one-to-one -one discussion, okay? What are your goals? What have you done last week? What are you going to do next week? And I would claim that very few parents spend 15 minutes serious discussion with their children every week. So that's the driving force of coaching and developing the students. The profit. And it's not, you know, we have this, the same kind of situation you have got here, and there was UK was in Sweden 20 years ago also. And what we have had lots of discussion. Um, I'm convinced that if you haven't got the profit incentive, it's much easier, much more difficult to drive innovation. But we have positioned ourselves to us, profit is not the objective, but the evidence. Uh, we tell our headmasters that the main objective of their life is to make sure that the children learn as much as possible. And they have one restriction, they are only allowed to spend $95 out of every 100, because we have to show the black figures. But then you ask yourself, how come that producers of textbooks, producers of uh, every equipment in the schools are being, that's for profit companies, and those that build the schools are for profit, or social democratic leader who just resigned, Mona Salin, she said in her debate on the socialist side, I cannot understand why it's allowed to make a profit when you build a school but not to run a school. And I think that's a very, very, very simple sentence. And if you started to build all schools without profit-making companies, you can make sure they would be much more expensive. I know that regulations. I told the British minister looking at the one of the schools they're building for us, if we did this in Sweden without all your regulations, we would lower the cost with 40% immediately. No problem whatsoever. You are overspending. The new Swedish model, the, the conclusion of this is that we are getting more and more into discussion of choice program in other welfare sector, also healthcare, elderly care, uh, and we are talking a bit about private-public partnership. It's an old tradition when you talked about the Swedish model. And we are getting more and more people are saying, hey, maybe we should change the traditional division responsibility where corporations made, prof made money and politicians took care of this money and used them for various welfare activities, but have new ways of working together in the same way as we have in the school sector, where, of course, politicians put together the core the, the curriculum, they make sure that they go up and inspect and have all those rules and regulations, but the main thing is that you have a competitive system where the ultimate decision-making rests with the parents and with the students. And that's what we are now moving into in elderly care and other things too, which changes the whole perception of the traditional Swedish from 
cradle-to-grave welfare model into something completely else. So that's why I say it's, the, it's really the voucher revolution has an enormous impact, not only on the schools, but also on other things on how society is being formed. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank the Cato Institute for this invitation. Um, let me introduce the debate that motivated, motivates this paper. Uh, the optimal scale of operation of a school is, is one of the most hotly debated issues in current educational policy reform discussions. Uh, one view is that larger schooling operations offer educational services more effectively and efficiently than a small independent school. Um, the proponents of this view also argue that school networks promote sound institutional environments in member schools and also that a network can provide political benefits and credibility in the school's community. Uh, but the critics of this view are concerned that the larger schooling operations will create hard-to-manage bureaucracies. And they also worry that schooling operations are lower staff motivation because empowered administrators and professionals far removed from the classroom. And because all, all, um, also because lower student motivation and parent involvement, and because promote more standardization and less innovation. And they claim that small autonomous schools can improve the quality of, edu of education. And this, these two opposite views um, have sparked two distinct trends in school uh, management. On the one hand is the district consolidation and funding for private schools. For example, in, in the US, uh, the district consolidation is one of the most significant reforms in the last years. And also, there is a growing number of private uh, school networks, charter school partnerships, and educational management organizations. And on the other hand is the small school initiative. Um, in this case, larger schools are reorganized into smaller autonomous schools. Uh, for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has already invested over $1 billion to divide uh, high schools in the United States. But the empirical evidence of the optimal size of operation of schools is limited uh, because it's clouded by methodological limitations. Uh, also, the research suffered from thin data because uh, it derived from the evaluation of small-scale programs and also because most educational uh, systems only provide funding for public schools. And the empirical findings of these small scale programs in the United States are mixed. Uh, for example, uh, the Edison School, uh, the researchers found that the Edison Schools, uh, the performance of these schools varies. And the evaluation of the smile uh, of the high schools founded by the Gates Foundation also suggests that there is wide variation in the quality of these schools. So what is the objective of this paper? Um, in this paper, we try to compare the 
achievement of private voucher independent, private voucher franchise, and public schools. Uh, why the Chilean case is relevant? Uh, first, because it's my country, and this is my, the, the most important reason, but also it's important because in 1981, Chile began financing public and most private schools with vouchers. And also because non-profit status is not required for private educational institution, and this is different from other countries because in other countries with private voucher schools, uh, these, are, these uh, schools are restricted to be non-profit organizations. But for example, in the Netherlands, the private voucher schools are restricted to be non-profit. And this is not the first paper that compares private and public schools in Chile, and most of these studies show a small private school advantage. But this paper differs from this work uh, because compare achievement across private schools, but according to their network size. Um, let me introduce the most important characteristic of the Chilean educational system. Uh, during the 80s, the military government in Chile instituted a sweeping education reform package. Uh, first, uh, the government decentralized the administration of the public schools from the Ministry of Education to the municipal government, and also introduced a school voucher system. And under this system, the public schools uh, uh, start to receive a per student voucher for every child. The private schools that did not charge tuition also began to receive the same per student voucher. And finally, the elite private schools uh, continued to operate without public funding. Um, as a result, the education has become increasingly privatized since the voucher reforms were introduced. In this graph, you can see the enrollment share in private and public schools, the evolution of this share. And for example, in 1979, 12% of Chilean K-12 students attended private schools that received some public subsidy, and another 7% attend these unsubsidized private schools, and almost 80% of the students attended public schools. But by 2009, uh, the picture is very different because the private voucher schools now had reached 48% of total enrollment, and now the majority of Chilean students are in, in private schools. Um, what do we know about the size of schooling operations in Chile? Uh, first, we know that private voucher school sector is essentially a cottage industry because more than 70% of these private voucher schools are independent schools that don't belong to a franchise. And the private voucher school franchises uh, account for about one-third of private voucher schools and enrollments. Um, but there is a slight downward trend in the percentage of students in these private voucher franchise schools in the recent years. And this drop is mainly explained by a reduction in the percentage of students in principal in for-profit and Catholic franchise schools. Um, and also we know that most of these franchises are fairly small in scale. For example, 50% of the private voucher franchise schools belong to franchises that have less than four schools. Uh, the for-profit franchise schools uh, stand in varying degrees of contrast to independent uh, for-profit voucher schools. These for-profit franchises, which are often controlled by a group of off-site owners, uh, represent 42% of all franchise schools in Chile. 
and the independent for-profit voucher schools, most of which are owned and run by formerly public school teachers, account for about 88% of all the independent schools. And on the other hand, the non-profit voucher schools represent a significant percentage of these private voucher franchise schools. And these non-profit voucher schools, including Catholic, Protestant, and secular organizations, represent about 58% of franchise schools, but only the 12% of these independent schools. And now I will present the empirical strategy of our paper. Uh, in this paper, we hypothesize that the student achievement came, can be modeled as a function of a student's socioeconomic characteristics. And we try to predict the achievement of a typical student uh, in each school category. And to measure the difference in achievement between two school categories, we subtract one prediction from another. And also, the estimates are correct for selection bias, but this is a technical fact. But the idea is that average student attending public schools can be different in socioeconomic characteristics from the student attending a public school. Uh, the data come from Chile's national standardized test. And the independent variables that we used in this paper include student demographics, for example, student's gender, year of, of parental schooling, uh, self-report household income, and number of books in the house. And also, a student peer information, uh, which is the average of the individual characteristic of the students, but across the, oh, in, in a given classroom, in the classroom of the student. Um, now I will present the most uh, significant uh, findings and results of this paper. Um, in this graph, you can see the difference between the school types and private voucher independent schools, which is the reference category. And for the student with the average characteristics of the private voucher independent school student. And the first column of the two panels of this graph uh, shows the an adjusted difference. In other words, the test score gap between public schools and private voucher independent schools and private voucher franchise schools and independent schools, but before controlling for all the independent variables and for selection bias. And the subsequent columns um, show the test score gap, but after controlling for the socioeconomic characteristic of the students, of the peer groups, and for selection bias. And the test score are standardized. And the incorrect estimates, in other words, the test score gap before controlling for all the independent variables, shows that private voucher independent schools outperform public schools. But the same incorrect estimates also shows that the private voucher franchise school outperform private voucher independent schools. But the question is, what happens when we control for the independent variables and selection bias? Well, after controlling for the student and peer attributes and selection bias, we also find a positive and significant private voucher franchise achievement effect. And this is the most important finding of this paper because this result means that the private voucher franchise school advantage is not related to the socioeconomic characteristic of the students, of the peer groups, or for selection bias. But this is different in the case of the public schools and private voucher independent schools test score gap because 
In this case, there is not significant difference between public and private voucher independent schools. In other words, after controlling for the socioeconomic characteristic of the students, there is no significant difference between these two kinds of uh, schools. So these results provide some evidence of the effectiveness of these private voucher franchise schools. And a very interesting question is, well, is there an optimal size of the franchise? And we found, after controlling for all the independent variables and selection bias, that schools that belong to uh, larger networks of four or more schools outperform the schools that belong to smaller networks of two or three schools. And to prove these findings further, uh, we compared the test scores, but after controlling for the religious affiliation of the school. Uh, because previous research in Chile and also in the United States has demonstrated that uh, uh, Catholic schools outperform other private schools. But the good news is that our results don't change uh, with this control. And this suggests that the positive franchise school advantage is not related to the religious affiliation of these schools. And also, we ran our model with other SIMSA databases, and this exercise shows that our results are consistent over time. Well, this is the summary of the main findings of the paper. Uh, first, that private voucher franchise schools outperform comparable private voucher independent schools. Uh, second, that private voucher independent schools uh, produce similar test scores, uh, all else equal, as public schools. And third, that larger private school franchises outperform smaller franchises. And most important is that these results are consistent over time and after controlling for the effect of the religious affiliation of the school. Uh, but what are some explanations for this positive franchise effect? Um, this uh, positive franchise effect may be explained by the substantial benefits of a scale of educational professionals, bulk purchases, and the reduced cost of implementation of innovations. This is the economies of scale argument. Also, larger networks may be more likely to benefit from access to credit and private investment than the smaller independent schools. And also, being embedded within a larger organization uh, can reduce the agency problems and facilitates transaction between the different educational agents. Uh, however, before holding this result as a proof that private voucher franchise schools outperform the, pri the private voucher independent schools, uh, we need more uh, information about what are the factors that influence a school owner to establish a franchise. Uh, because, for example, High achieving schools may be more likely to establish a franchise or join to a franchise than low quality schools. And such causal effect is a topic for future research, and we need more information. And this is a conclusion also of the paper because, in terms of public policy, uh, we found that more information is needed about the these factors that influence this, the establishment of franchises. For example, we need to know how profitable are private voucher school networks. And also, we need to know how risky is this industry for entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. Uh, and why? Well, because this information is key to designing a public policy that tries to 
uh, encourage the networking of the schools. But the results of this paper offer some insights for other countries uh, on school vouchers, the scale of operation of schools, and the benefits of the educational management organizations. But the good news is that our results suggest that policies that try to and make incentives for the school networks uh, may have the potential to increasing educational outcomes. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, does anyone uh, here can tell me if we can uh, have Sarah <laughs> speak from her uh, microphone at her desk? Is that problematic? Anyone from here? Why don't you try speaking into it, see if it's on now? Hello? Is that? Great. Cool. Um, I'm always really interested in how research into uh, schools and school districts and the way schools operate in other countries reflects back. Um, and this is particularly interesting in part because um, one of the big criticisms against looking at international school research is that, well, that's fine, but how is it going to work here? And we will have very shortly a perfect uh, experiment in how well the Swedish model uh, transfers over to the United States with all of its very different approaches to um, vouchers and to charter schools and all of that stuff. And both of the models were really interesting and certainly the research on them um, is intriguing. I agree with you that uh, it seems very early research. Um, I'll, I'll start with uh, the, the Chile report. Um, I am. I was intrigued by the way that um, the franchise schools or chain schools were different in how they uh, they performed compared to both public and other independent. And it was interesting to me that uh, there was very little discussion of what at the school looked different. Um, I know that that certainly wasn't the topic of your uh, report, but I, I hope it's the topic of future because uh, that will go, it makes a huge difference for us in, in using that as a model. If, if the difference is that these schools have certain uh, efficiencies or differences in more experimental teaching strategies, um, then those can be incredibly powerful and will be very easy to uh, make a case for moving them over here. It's a little less so, I think, if the, the fact that these uh, multiple schools are the natural result of um, competition. I know that sounds odd at the Cato Institute, but if you think about it, um, the vast proportion of independent schools are, uh, I mean, the vast proportion of, of the voucher 
private schools as opposed to public are these independent mom and pop shops. And you've got a small cohort of very good schools that if they have gotten there by being able to franchise out, then we have to look at what are the policies um, that will prevent it from being a vast majority of experimental designs that mostly fail and a small percentage of very good models that work for the students that they that are there um, that I think would be a lot harder to sell in the United States because parents uh, usually can't switch schools the day after they decide they don't like them and that means you've got a lot of kids waiting for uh, the same way we have lotteries for charter schools and KIPP schools and your own charter school now. So being able to transfer the good things about the school and understand why these particular chains um, have done something educationally different as opposed to just the sort of general small slice out of a very large pool, that will be really interesting to see. Um, on for the Swedish, I'm, I'm really interested in the Swedish uh, model coming here, and particularly because um, it will I it will be interesting to see how that works in a market where uh, the costs aren't quite controlled as as much. Uh, certainly, the oh, I'm sorry. Um, the curriculum and standards will be the same within New York, but even their curriculum from district to district and sometimes school to school could be fairly different. And one of my, my major questions to you is how are you changing that model to deal with the differences in the way vouchers and charters and things of that work in Sweden versus here. Um, I'd also be interested to see how, even in, in your home country, you deal with the differences in initial cost. Um, if you have the same voucher amount for every student and that and you are not allowed to charge on top of that. And students can leave very easily, so you don't necessarily have the, the most stable set amount. How do you manage costs for the differences between a student who has severe learning disabilities or uh, is an immigrant student and doesn't speak the language or is very poor and has very little family support. Those, at least in the U.S., uh, research has shown tend to cost more. Uh, so what I'm wondering is how that works. Um, so I'll actually go sh first to you for, for some of those questions. And uh, I 
don't like speaking a lot in public, so I will be <laughs> going to the audience with questions as soon as possible. Please go ahead. I should respond to that. I, you know, the Swedish system is that the voucher varies from municipality to municipality from about $8,000 to $11,000, $12,000. We take it all into the company. And then we have schools in some very tough areas and some other areas. We have one school where we have got 60% immigrants, probably 20% from Iraq. As you know, we have more immigrants from Iraq in one city close to Stockholm than you have in the whole United States. Um, uh, that was the school that I showed to Jeb Bush two years ago when he was a bit excited. How come that you get it to function? Uh, we have avoided going into uh, uh, rich areas. That was a decision from the beginning. I went into blue-collar workers' area, not the others. But I think the, the main... So, so we have, of course, we spend more resources in those areas, and that we do within the company. And then there, there is a possibility to get additional grants for very specific cases. And we cannot refuse to accept... We have lots of students in wheelchairs and with lots of disability. If they apply to us, we have to accept them. And we, are, we very much like to accept them, too, as our learning model, having everything on the computer, making sure that you also can work from home, the parents are involved, makes it easier for those that really uh, uh, learn more. But... If I get back to the, there's about chain schools. I think the, the reason why, why we have succeeded is that we are measuring everything. You know, we go to 35 schools. You get to fight from each the headmaster to make sure that they get, give as good results as possible. And we go so far so that we look at when a teacher is in charge of 20 students. Okay, how much did they know when they start? And how much do they know a year after? And then, of course, we try to make sure that teachers that uh, are better in other careers pursue other careers. Uh, we, are, we probably have fired 25 heads of schools if they don't perform. It's no excuse. Uh, and we have a very close cooperation with trade union. When we started the school, we made an agreement at 40 hours a week. Uh, it's normal, and there is part of the salary goes to those. The increase uh, depends on how well the teacher has performed with his or her group. Not the, the actual grade they have given, but what is the value they have added. And that's probably something very Swedish to have this pragmatic corporation attitude. But, but the overall... Uh, conclusions I can draw everywhere, and that is you have to compare, you have to measure, you have to make sure that you keep control what is the quality. And I, I mean, your, your research was extremely interesting, and I think we will inspire us in Sweden to look a bit deeper into the 25% of the sector that are change schools that are expanding, because more poor schools have this difficulty of some time. How do you change into a new MAPA in those schools? You know, it's, it's, it's not very easy. So that's a very, very interesting part of 
of the thing. And I'm fascinated that cities, at least in Sweden, that, that those that are in the public sector, that they do not try to run their schools as a chain of schools. But they, they independent schools, an independent school board with parents here and parents there. Lots of non-professionals who don't understand and know anything. They believe they know about education, but they are not professional in education. And I think that's a worldwide uh, uh, way of handling education, where you get, when you get change, you measure, you compare, and you say, okay, I, they are doing it better, let's do it that way too. I just had one uh, f uh, question for Umberto before I, I forget, increasingly likely as I get older. Um, you mentioned in the green room earlier that the people who found the independent private schools, the single uh, mom and pop private schools, are different a bit from the people who run the larger franchises. And could you talk about that? Uh, I will speak in Spanish, please. Yeah. Um, um, la mayoría de los eh, sostenedores independientes en Chile son antiguos profesores del sector público que terminaron su labor y hoy tienen su propio negocio. Most people that run uh, the, the, the private independent schools are former public uh, teachers that now they, they took over the schools and they now they're, they're running it. Mientras que la mayoría de las escuelas que forman redes eh, pertenecen el 50% a organizaciones sin fines de lucro como congregaciones religiosas o de otras religiones. Whereas uh, the chain schools belong mostly like 50% to uh, networks like foundations, religious foundations and, and some other non-profit foundations. También existen eh, redes con fines de lucro dentro de, de, de esta escuela en redes, pero son solamente el 50%, mientras que en esta escuela independiente representan eh, la mayoría. There are other uh, for-profit change networks, but they are only like 50% of, of, of the total. Eh, y la principal, la principal diferencia, eh, yo diría, entre, este dos, entre estos dos tipos de escuelas es que Estas escuelas independientes son tienen mucho menos recursos que las escuelas que funcionan en red, porque estos profesores del sector público básicamente son personas que tienen una baja calificación y muchas veces se posicionan en áreas de nivel socioeconómico bajo uh, y no tienen la, la capacidad de gestionar esta escuela y por eso que en la presentación yo mostré que estas escuelas cuando uno las compara con las escuelas públicas eh, no existen grandes diferencias y son las Redes, más bien las que logran mejorar los resultados educativos. Yeah, uh, the the main difference between uh, the private uh, independent schools and the chain schools is that the people who run the the, the, the private independent schools are former professors that usually have uh, far less resources than the for the than the other the chain schools, and they come from social strata that usually is lower, and they don't have the the, the management management skills that the other schools have. And that's why the results show that independent private schools don't perform that more, much more different than public schools. Did you have any other questions that you wanted to ask, Sarah, or do you want um, to go to the audience? A, a little bit. Or, oh, you, did you want to? Yeah, it was one thing I did not respond to, and that was how we, when we convert and go to the UK. And it's very interesting, we, we got, 
Lots of delegation from United Kingdom coming to Sweden because personalized education is very much discussed. And then we actually employed a, a British extremely good headmaster to run our, one of our schools, uh, which we were allowed to do. You know, it's very important. In some countries, you must have an examination from your home country, which I think is very silly. We are living in a global world. So that was an excellent way of bringing teachers over. We brought Swedish teachers over. And then we, we have taken, you know, the, the British government have translated all our curriculum, all our modeling from Swedish into English. And then we have taken over two schools in Richmond in one of the uh, very, very rich area in London. Two schools that were among the 10% uh, worst schools in the United Kingdom. And there we are step by step introducing our model. And of course, it's a challenge. It's much easier to start from scratch, then take over to schools. We've got 2,000 students there, and now we get another one with 1,000 in Ipswich. So step by step, we are getting them into the, into the, new, the new model, includes cooperation. And in the States, we have probably 15 teachers of various kinds helping to transform what we have done into the curriculum in New York. Um, and this is, to me, if I look a bit longer term, as I've said again, in the global world, you know, we, we, I see it's exciting that all our students, regardless if they are in, in Delhi or Stockholm or London or New York or wherever, can connect to each other and be part of the same kind of network. And, and that's the revolution, I believe, will happen in education in the next coming 25 years. Art, this is actually a question for both of you. Are there any um, incentives or procedures in place in either of your countries to support um, successful models and, and help them expand faster? No. The only incentive is that uh, if we are successful, we get more students. And uh, so it's, it's, it's very much market oriented. Uh, en Chile no existe ninguna política pública específicamente diseñada para eh, motivar la formación de redes de colegios. There's no public policy whatsoever in Chile to incentivize the, the formation of change in, in schools. Pero existen algunas propuestas eh, tendientes a facilitar la entrada de escuelas al mercado que tengan uh, el respaldo de una red de colegios y que hayan demostrado tener buenos resultados. Entonces Eso de alguna manera eh, favorecería la, la, el establecimiento de, de, de redes de escuelas. Uh, there are several proposals to make it easier for, for schools to uh, open up and, and have their, the, back, the backing of a, of a change, and that will make it easier to, to have uh, the development of change eventually. El problema, como, como lo señalé en la presentación, es que existe muy poca información acerca de del mercado educacional en sí mismo. Eh, ¿Por qué las escuelas forman redes? Y eso limita un poco la posibilidad de, de generar políticas públicas que fomenten la formación de redes. De the problem is that we don't have enough information to, to find out why schools form uh, the change. So it's kind of difficult to see how you can actually incentivize them to do so. Um, and the last question, then we can go back. In, in the United States, we have two separate 
areas of school choice when people talk about school choice. One is the voucher system of giving someone a chunk of money to go to whatever school they want. Um, and the other, and that can be to for-profit commercial, it can be to non-profit, similar to what it seems like some of the chains are uh, run by religious or other foundation. Um, or we have the charter side, which is uh, still publicly run, but not under the auspices of the school district. Um, and I was interested that when you came over to the United States, you chose a charter rather than starting a private school. And I was wondering if you could say why you decided to do that, and for both of you, what you, how close do you think the your voucher systems in your home countries are to for straight private schools as we have them in the United States versus charter schools? Well, the main reason for me coming from egalitarian Sweden, and it started already in the UK because we made a study to go in and start private schools. And we thought that we could compete very efficient way when we saw the overpayments to the schools compared to results. But then when the Minister of Academies, Lord Adonis, came and said, hey, can't you go in the academy program, which is a, a within the maintained sector and it's financed by the government, we saw that as more interesting. Well, from a philosophical view, uh, I think it's, I'm, I'm more keen on making sure bringing education for 95% for of the children, not to the top five of the rich and noble, you know, it's, they can all, always manage. So we look the same in the States, obviously, that how do we do that? And here it's only the shorter model, because you have still not realized, which of course will happen in the States too, that we should be able to run a for-profit company without going through this, all this bureaucracy with the shortage. But that's where we are now. So that's where we are. Our aim is now to build a flagship school and show how our educational model functions and do that in the UK and do it here. And with that, hoping that will help to, to change the system and make more realize that, look, it's good to have competitors and it's okay that you can make a profit also if you provide better education. I have a, a follow-up on that too, actually. Um, because there's so much interest in scaling up good schools and, uh, I mean, it's all across the U.S. and for the past 10 years, it's been charter schools that have been the approach people have most looked to for how to scale up excellence. And there are some great charter school networks that most people and a lot of independent researchers have found do a really good job. Like KIPP, for instance, is a really well-known network of charter schools, high performing, and it has grown substantially over time. So is this a model in and of itself um, for replicating excellence? And the way that KIPP has grown is by getting philanthropic contributions. So donors have given money to the KIPP organization in order to replicate itself around the country. Is that a model where people just give money and hope that the school expands but have no expectation of a return on investment? 
that can produce the same effects we see in other fields, where the people who are giving money to expand an enterprise are doing it with an expectation that they'll get their money back. And I wanted to find out empirically. And so what I'm doing right now is a study in which I've looked at the performance of all 70 or so charter school networks operating in California, including KIPP and 69 or so others. And I've got data on their performance uh, from a, a huge range of California state tests. I've also collected data on how much grant funding each of those charter school networks has received. So we can do a correlation between grant funding and performance. And if it's a high positive number, then maybe that's a viable model. And if it's a not, then maybe it's not. Um, this isn't going to be the definitive study of the subject, but it's at least int an interesting start. What I find, uh, and this is still preliminary, the paper itself won't come out for a couple of months, um, what I find so far is that the correlation between grant funding and performance is 0.07, which is about as close to zero as you ever see because there are usually random correlations between things. There's almost exactly no correlation between the grant funding charter school networks receive and how well they perform. And in fact, just for fun, this was my wife's idea, I did a correlation between the number of letters in the school's name or the charter network's name and their performance, and that's minus 0.29. It's negative, so shorter names are better, uh, and it's four times stronger than the relationship between grant funding and performance. So uh, this makes me a little skeptical of that model, but again, this is pretty preliminary work, so we'll have to see. Did you have any other uh, questions, Sarah? I'd, I'd like to hear what they say. All right, let's uh, open it up to the audience. Yeah, do we have uh, microphones, I think, uh, circulating? Yeah, up here uh, right on the uh, right at the top. Uh, hello. Um, I'm Eugenia Kemble from the Albert Shanker Institute. Um, first of all, it's great that Cato's doing this. I think it's important to have these discussions. I do wish, though, that um, it might be a little more balanced in terms of some of the information. I have some questions based on my reading uh, about these two systems. Um, and I want to go to performance. First of all, uh, Sweden has gone down since 2000, and I read in one place, uh, three times as fast as any other country in terms of its reading scores on PISA. It's also go down, gone down in math between 2006 and 2000, no, uh, science 2006, 2009, math 2003, 2009. Um, and it would seem to indicate that there might be something wrong with this particular reform. In the Chile case, uh, yeah, the school-by-school school comparisons from what I've read, you're right, uh, don't show much of a difference. But when you go to the individual students within those schools, you will find that the private voucher students are doing uh, considerably uh, better um, than the public's, and this may be due to socioeconomic choice. In fact, my hypothesis is that we're really talking about neighborhood schools here and that what you're getting is intensified stratification. All the research I've seen says that. And you're not getting a true measure of what these schools are doing. Um, so I'd like to know what you think about some of that, and hopefully Cato will have um, some other views on this panel the next time. Thank you. All right, I start off maybe with Peja answering the Swedish question. Well, I, I think it's correct that the peace has gone down in Sweden, and that's very much discussed. Uh, at the same time, it's no question that the Independent schools are performing much better than the rest of the schools. And uh, uh, it's, uh, 
the fact that PISA has gone down, you know, PISA is very high in Finland. Uh, it, uh, I would also question uh, PISA as the uh, correct measurement of everything. There are many other aspects when you, when you develop uh, young people. Uh, so when you get into the Swedish discussion, I think it's a consensus that the, the, uh, the competition and the fact that you have got a large independent sector has in a whole been, become better. But we have at the same time debate. You know, when, we started, when I started Kunska School, and we were not allowed to measure students in the way that you get grade them, because that was impossible in Sweden. That's why we, we talk about the black and the blue and the red slope, because that's okay. Uh, so we are still, uh, that's now being changed in the new law, that the agreement that came last year, that means that we can give uh, concrete feedback to all the students. So it's uh, the, the voucher revolution, it's one part of a much wider change of the whole Swiss, Swedish system where you require more results than you did in the old system. I want just one follow-up on uh, Finland and PISA and international testing. There, there really is a wide acceptance that PISA is quite different from the other uh, most well-known international tests, the TIMS. And while Finland has consistently performed at, you know, first, second, third on the PISA for the past several administrations of the test, the last time Finland took the TIMS, different tests, same subjects, um, it performed between 10th and 14th, you know, depending on the subject. And perhaps coincidentally, Finland no longer takes the TIMS. Uh, they only take the PISA, the one that they do really well on. And maybe that's just a pure coincidence, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, yeah, we had a question down here on the front uh, as well. Uh, oh, I, Umberto wanted to uh, answer as well. I need to <laughs> answer the question. A diferencia de lo que ocurre en Suecia, lo que se expuso en esta presentación, en Chile hay dos distorsiones, yo creo, a este sistema de vouchers. Like what happens in Sweden, in Chile, there are two distortions to the system of the voucher. La primera es que las escuelas pueden cobrar a las familias un monto adicional a la subvención. Firstly, is that families can charge an additional charge to to the schools can charge an additional additional fee to 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 parents for schools. Y la otra es que Si bien es cierto, en el último tiempo se ha um, prohibido la selección de estudiantes, eh, es una práctica muy común que las escuelas privadas establezcan mecanismos de selección de sus estudiantes según el rendimiento académico o características socioeconómicas. And even though that uh, selection of students has been banned recently, private schools still manage to do that through different, different ways. Y esas dos diferencias con respecto al caso sueco, eh, efectivamente, los estudios han mostrado que generan efectivamente cierta uh, segregación eh, en las escuelas subvencionadas porque las escuelas privadas, al poder seleccionar estudiantes eh, y al poder cobrar, eh, en general atraen estudiantes de nivel socioeconómico más alto y los estudiantes más desaventajados terminan finalmente en las escuelas públicas. 
research has shown that, that that actually has an impact because then private schools can charge an additional fee to parents and uh, they can select from the from the highest strata of, of, of socioeconomic strata uh, students. So that definitely has an impact on on the on the whereas whereas uh, poor students end up in the public schools. So that definitely has an impact on on, on the results. Incluso existen ciertos resultados que son un poco contraintuitivos porque, por ejemplo, las escuelas católicas, que son escuelas que uno espera que por su misión tengan uh, uh, estudiantes de nivel socioeconómico más bajo, eh, en general los resultados muestran que tienen menos estudiantes desaventajados que el resto de las escuelas, incluso que escuelas con fines de lucro. There is actually some counterintuitive results, but because if you look at Catholic schools because of their mission, you you, you will suppose that, that they have uh, people from from lower uh, income uh, strata, but uh, the results show that they even they actually have people from higher income uh, uh, strata, even more than pro for profit uh, schools. Yeah, this is actually something that we discussed a bit in the green room before coming out, and uh, it's. It's actually, uh, I think, also partly the result of the way the voucher system is designed in Chile, where the, the way the funding system is designed in Chile. In addition to the voucher, the public schools can receive some additional funding. And overall, this is not a large amount of funding, but it is concentrated on low-income schools and low-income students. And so from the parents' perspective, if you are in a low-income area and you yourself are in a low-income family, you can choose between a private school that has the voucher amount to spend on your child and a public school that has the voucher amount plus up to 20, 30 percent of additional funding. And it's a, a pretty big incentive for parents to choose the public schools, and it makes it easier for the public schools to offer a better education. Yeah, we had the question up front. Yeah, hello. My name is Craig Olson. Um, I'd like to ask uh, both Mr. Emelson and Mr. Santos, <clears throat> um, how, how free are your independent schools, as you call them in Sweden, and your franchise or private schools, as you call them in Chile, to uh, set compensation and benefits for teachers and, um, and other employees of the school system? or? I, I noticed that, Mr. Emelson, you mentioned that there are unions that you deal with, and so is that a constraint? And um, and then uh, for Mr. Emelson, uh, if the uh, independent schools in Sweden are doing uh, so well, as you pointed out, why then are barely one in ten of the eleven to or the seven to sixteen-year-olds enrolled, and nine of ten still in public schools? Well, if it, let's take the second first. You know, it's in some rural, rural areas up to 50% already now. And uh, uh, if you say it's only during the last 10, 12 years, it really has taken off and it's expanding rapidly now. The, the key constraint for opening more schools is the difficulty finding locations. Um, so um, it will continue to grow rapidly. Yes, we have, we have made a collective agreement with the trade union. And, uh, of course, they will accept that we can increase salaries as we like. But we get exactly the same amount of money as the other schools get. So uh, 
it's not very easy to increase. But we have fewer teachers, and we have expanded top salaries for a number of them. So there is a career opportunity, and that is with the consent of the teachers' union. When I talk to teachers' unions here and in the United Kingdom, they are very surprised that the teachers' union in Sweden are as they are, but they are. And I think a reason for that is that before the voucher revolution, there was basically only one employer. Uh, and now they have opened up. It's also good for teachers to have competing possibilities. Uh, so that has also changed, changed the climate. And you will, in the next coming 10 years, see an increase of compensation for good teachers. And if, because more and more is the fact that, as McKinsey study showed, the, the key thing in education is to have the best teachers. And there is enormous difference between those that are really good and those that really should do something else. Uh, and there we have a good system in Sweden to making sure that those that should pursue alternative careers get that opportunity. Benefits is the same. It's very standardized in Sweden, extremely standardized. Yeah. And I have two, two, member, two trade union members on the board of the company. That's also a law in Sweden. So the trade unions are represented on the board of the company. Um, a diferencia de lo que ocurre en Suecia y en muchos otros países con un sector público muy grande, eh, en Chile hoy existe una diferencia muy importante en la regulación eh, para los profesores en el sector público y privado. Unlike what happens in Sweden and other countries with large public sectors, in, in Chile there is a stark difference between what, what happens in, in, with teachers in the public sector and teachers in the private sector. Los profesores del sector público se comportan relativamente similar a lo que ocurre en Suecia y existe un colegio de profesores que reúne a todos estos profesores y ellos negocian su salario en forma centralizada con el gobierno. In the public sector, it's very similar what happens in in Sweden, and there is even a council of teachers that does collective bargaining with with the government. En cambio, en el sector privado existe muy, muy poca regulación sobre quiénes pueden eh, ser profesores y también sobre los salarios, y por lo tanto las escuelas tienen mucha flexibilidad en establecer los salarios. Solo hay restricciones, por ejemplo, como salarios mínimos que eh, también eh, se aplican a todos los otros trabajadores del sector privado. Whereas in the private sector there are little uh, regulations on, on, on teachers. I mean, anybody can be a teacher. And... Uh, uh, there is uh, the, there are the only minimal regulation that exists is, is in, in orders of minimum wage and so on. But uh, on, on anything else, uh, there is a lot of flexibility in private schools when it comes to hiring and salaries and, and so on. Y esta diferencia recientemente ha generado un debate muy grande en Chile porque el gobierno actual eh, estableció una nueva ley donde las escuelas públicas, ahora el director de las escuelas públicas, puede remover al 5% de los profesores peor evaluados. teachers. Y eh, ob obviamente el Colegio de Profesores eh, ha reaccionado muy fuerte contra esta medida. Eh, 
pero yo creo sinceramente que eh, para que el mercado educacional funcione, eh, tanto las escuelas públicas como privadas efectivamente tienen que competir por los estudiantes como es la, la, la idea de este modelo. Y con esta restricción las escuelas públicas efectivamente no pueden competir con una escuela privada porque el director está restringido a mantener profesores que tienen bajo resultado. Yeah, that this chain has created a lot of uh, anger from the public sector uh, teacher unions. But uh, Mr. Santos believes that the whole purpose of a voucher system is to instill competition. And if you handicap public schools and uh, the directors can fire uh, bad performing teachers, then uh, they are they are in a in a pretty bad position to compete. And so this reform, he thinks, is is quite uh, appropriate for to to excel the the system. Okay. Yeah. Do we have? Uh Other questions? Oh, or did you... Beneficios de qué tipo? What kind of benefits? Yes, what kind of benefits? Pensiones, beneficios de sociales, seguridad social, etcétera, etcétera. Como lo dije, los profesores en escuelas privadas son igual a cualquier funcionario de una empresa privada. Private private school teachers are like any other private sector employee. So they they the same regulations that apply to any other company, private company applies to 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 private teachers, including health benefits, social security, and so on. Did we have? Yeah, we have a question on the aisle here. Thank you. The public education here in the United States is a tremendous, I believe, amount of resistance to vouchers and charter schools, even though they're gradually entering into our public education system. How do you deal with or how, as you move in in New York, you have to deal with teachers unions, education unions, administrative staff, um, I think, I don't think there's any city in the United States that says we don't need more money for our school system, and there's a tremendous amount of money being used in administrative costs and overrun because I have worked in two different school systems here in the United States. So how, how do you address those issues when it comes to vouchers or charter schools, the fact that you were, fact that you were able to get rid of bad teachers and then unions is going to come and say no. Uh, I think the money issue, the funding, uh, and the administrative offices uh, that spend so much money and it doesn't go to the classroom, how do you deal with that and work with that and, and the unions? Because the resistance here to change is, I think, really big uh, issue. Thank you. Well, I... I should say we have been very much welcomed, and uh, I've been amazed in New York uh, with all the support we have got from uh, the city of New York that asked us to, hey, can't you show how you could take uh, your model of education here? Um, of course, it's easy. We are starting one school with uh, 200 students to start with. And then it's sort of an example. So I think we are probably seen as an experiment. We are not turning the whole system upside down. Uh, that may may be one reason. But uh, at the same time, I I got so enormous support from people active in the educational sector. Say, hey, this is interesting. Maybe we can 
use this here too. So uh, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very much more positive than uh, when I hear some of my friends here are talking about how difficult it is. You know, it's uh, yes, it will work. Yeah, and I, I just had one question about the way that it worked in Sweden. Is it the case that um, there was tremendous resistance to the idea of a voucher program nationwide and that it was only because a party was elected that was more free market oriented and, and implemented this program no. and it was only after people saw it? No, no the, it came because people were fed up with the schools. They were no good. You see, I started four schools in uh, year 2000 and I got 900 students year one in a brand new school, no track record whatsoever. They did not come to me because they believed I had a better education and model. They came to me because they saw no, no other alternative. And I think that was the situation we were. So when you go deep down enough in the system, people say, hey, we have to change this. And I think there are some places in the States where people have realized that we need to try something new. We have time for another question. Perdón, eh, voy a... Oh, yeah. uh, eh, pero para responder a la pregunta acerca de las dificultades que ha encontrado de la expansión del sector privado en Chile. About, uh, to, to reply about the difficulties that the private sector has, the private schools have found in, in Chile. Uh, lo interesante del caso chileno es que la introducción del sistema de vouchers eh, no ocurrió precisamente en un... Uh, momento en que hubiera la posibilidad de debatir acerca de la introducción de los vouchers. The interesting thing about the introduction of the voucher system in Chile is that it happened in a moment in, in, the, in the country's history where debate wasn't pretty much allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Entonces, más que un debate político, eh, lo que hubo fue básicamente la introducción de un nuevo sistema. So there was no political debate, it just, it just happened. Y efectivamente, eh, las escuelas privadas, o sea, a ver, el debate en Chile durante los 80, más que la calidad, que es lo que se debate en los países eh, más desarrollados que Chile, eh, durante los 80 el tema fue mucho la cobertura educacional. So the debate back in the 1980s in Chile about uh, education wasn't about quality, but about the coverage of, of the education throughout the country. Eh, y solo recientemente, después de, lo, de, de los 90, eh, una vez que ya Chile alcanzó un nivel de cobertura comparable a los países desarrollados, es que eh, la, la discusión de la calidad eh, de la educación es lo que hoy día eh, se está básicamente discutiendo. It wasn't until the 90s when coverage reached the levels of developed countries that the, the debate focused more on quality of education. Like, and that's, this is the debate that, that Chile is, going, is, taking, is taking place in Chile right now. Y es por eso que hoy eh, el debate en Chile es más bien lo público versus lo privado, mientras que durante los años 80 no hubo mucho, mucho debate. Eh, y efectivamente la, las escuelas públicas en Chile hoy sienten que están en desventaja versus las escuelas privadas. Eh, incluso hoy hay posturas muy extremas que tratan de frenar la entrada de nuevos colegios particulares subvencionados eh, e incluso empezar a restringir la entrada y eliminar ciertos eh, proveedores de baja calidad. Yeah, so the debate right now is this is between public and private uh, schools and public schools feel that they are in a disadvantage because of the regulations that we discussed previously and there are even some uh, extreme views that uh, are proposing to curtail the 
the expansion of private schools and, and the, the creation of private schools. And even uh, they claim that uh, the, the, lo the lowest performing private school should be uh, closed down altogether. Leaving out a very important part of this picture is the payment, the taxpayer dollars that come to, for voucher or charter schools, along with any private dollars. So a public-private partnership is fine, but what about the funding for these voucher schools or charter schools still comes from the public. I think the resistance here is the public schools don't want to have to put out any money for charter schools and certainly don't want to put out anything, give a voucher, because that money has to come from someone. Nothing is free, even in Sweden or Chile. There has to be taxpayer dollars. Money has to come from somewhere. So a public-private partnership could be great. The public pays and the private part reaps the benefits, So, uh, and that being the resources and the money. So that, I think, is an important issue. Thank you. Could I respond? A substantial amount of all taxpayers' money is being used to buy services from corporations that are being run by a profit. I suppose also in the States, whatever you spend when you build a road or build houses or whatever you do, it's being done by private companies we run for a profit. So the question is, and that's the debate we try to turn to in Sweden, how do we get as much as possible for the taxpayers' money? How do we get more efficient? And how are we going to use the, that fact to get more education for each dollar we put in? And that's, I think, it's, we, we see more and more very clear signs that the same models you use in other kinds of activities in society, running as corporations that must make a profit, also make sense in education. We have time for one more question. Oh, go ahead, sir. Just a really quick follow-up. I noticed that... Um, your the place where you have larger market share is not in what we think of as K-12. It's really in, I guess, what would be almost equivalent to our community college system in the 16 to 18. Could you talk a little bit about the... the no. well, we, we started, we basically are secondary and upper secondary. We start when the children are 11, 12 years old. We have been looking at going down to six-year-old children. But it's a completely different market situation because parents normally would like to have a school very close to where they live when you start there. But uh, while you go when they're 11, 12, they can travel a bit and you get another kind of mix. So that's why we have focused there. But we are looking at them. We'll probably take a step further to develop our educational model further to, to lower ages, because I haven't talked so much about that, but it, it's a tremendous system that you have all the curriculum on web pages. You don't need to have traditional books. I saw today that it's uh, Amazon sells more now on the Kindle, yeah. on the Kindle than in real books. It's, it's a revolution we are going through now, and that's also a revolution that means that, that you, you don't learn in the traditional classroom situation, but in so many, many more situations. And, I don't think we have any final responses of that. We are trying to develop and use the, 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 the creativity and the fact that we know that, well, my God, my grandchildren are much better on this than I am. And, and uh, we, the only thing I know, it will change dramatically and open up possibilities. 
Well, I'm getting the signal that we have to wrap it up now, I'm afraid. And so I will thank you all again very much for coming out today. It was really wonderful. Thank you.